Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So, would anyone like to tell everyone where we are today? We are in our extremely swanky. New digs. <gasps> Did you say extremely swampy new digs? <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking around. This doesn't look at all like the jungle studio. Ben, no, well, we moved a plant down there to it so that it is now the new jungle studio. It is the new jungle studio. Because we inaugurated it with a plant. Now we have to fill it with lots of plants. And it's feeling warm and humid it's like a, a jungle. Warm. Hey, a can, warm. Can, AC's not running. Can I just say studio. that it gets really like, like sleep? political gab fest if we all complain about how hot the studio is because <laughs> that's like i love the slate political gab fest but one thing that drives me nuts about it is at, like listening to david plotz complain about like how hot the studio is not complaining just saying that now Informing our studio merits the name but they have a, they have a nice new studio and now we do too you want to know my favorite part what is your favorite i part? can gaze right into shane's face that's right. i usually shane listeners don't know this but she is kind of like behind me and off like and a corner us. and it's i like, can't awkward. really see him but now i just yeah. your beautiful you face right is right there the chemistry the oh, you. The you know what my favorite awesome. part is what that uh every time somebody wants to record a podcast they don't have to take over my office anymore <laughs> and also i think i'm not sure about this but i think the acoustic paneling on the wall will reduce the number of times that we have to stop for low flying helicopter, oh, and which will upset Tammy because she no, loves low flying helicopter. You know what? Not hearing low flying helicopter will just be soothing for me. It, my whole quality of life will improve. And of course, we have Scotch. Always. Welcome home. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the New Digs Edition. I am Shane Harris, proud moderator of the New Jungle Studio. This is pretty sweet, you guys. This is a momentous day. Yeah, it thanks uh, to to Matt, who like actually put this new studio together and kind of made it happen. He's sitting there behind all this fancy new recording Audio equipment, like a board. Yeah, it's 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 awesome. We're yeah. not even done yet. The the sound quality will get even better because yeah, we have to finish the ceiling. So if you're out there, like a garage band. if you're one of those people who's out there who's been complaining to us about audio quality, we want to hear from you. Is this week's edition better? And if the answer is no, tell us it is anyway. <laughs> <laughs> this is we as good as it gets. You, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I am here with my friends, Mark Hoffman, Wittis, Susan Hennessy, and Ben Wittis. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hey. It is a little toasty in here, I'm just going to say. But it's also like 110 fucking degrees outside. Yeah. Now we got an E Jesus. on the pod. Well, Great. We have an E every week. Is I'm sorry. If there was a week where uh, Michaela's like, no, that's not true. Don't we have an E like every week? There are weeks we that we go We deserve an E every e. week. Uh, maybe Jen can edit it out. Oh, fuck it. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> leave it in, Jen. Oh, Fucking leave God. it in. Oh, God. All right. This week on the podcast, a bombshell new book shows the Trump presidency on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Uh, that's news, right? 
I was okay. on the verge of a nervous <laughs> breakdown reading about I, this yeah, book I about, about a nervous breakdown. We'll get to that. Uh, the U.S. pulls funding for a Palestinian relief agency and the president lashed out again at the attorney general and the Justice Department. Why is this time different? We're going to talk about that. Let's start with the big news of the week. Uh, the Kavanaugh hearing nearly threatened to overshadow the early release of excerpts from uh, Washington Post reporter Bob Woodward's new book, Fear, which we had a debate of me and some friends yesterday. I think the book should have been called Crazy Town, which was the quote from um, uh, John, John Kelly, Kelly. Saying, we are in Crazy Town. I yeah, agree. Or maybe Fear and Loathing would have <laughs> been an appropriate title. House would have been appropriate. It's actually based on a Trump quote, which is real power is – I don't even want to use the word fear. <laughs> Why didn't he want to use, use the, the quote? Word. What? I don't even want to use the word fear. He didn't want an E rating. I just uh, want to point out that like that's a subject that Machiavelli treated a long time ago <laughs> and with somewhat more sophistication <laughs> than, than the president. Well, you see, President Trump is a real political philosopher. Right. He's been right. reading his Machiavelli and, and has his decided – And his apparently. He's <laughs> just priming the pump for you to go you know, get ready for his uh, revelations. Remember that when he invented that term? Yeah. A long time ago. Um, Susan, why don't you read your favorite passage from the Woodward book just to get us it started? It is. It's, it's a Reince Priebus special who describes Trump officials not as rivals but as, quote, natural predators. When you put a snake and a rat and a falcon and a rabbit and a shark and a seal in a zoo without walls, things start getting nasty and bloody. <laughs> I'm just, which is what? so weird. How does this seal fit in there? And which one is the seal? Right. That's what I seal. Also, what rat is in a seal? Okay. A shark in a tank so, that so has can, to breathe. So can we assign roles here? Because I totally want I'm to be the seal. I'm definitely the shark. I'm the thing. falcon for sure. You're getting the hell out of here. Okay, I guess I'm the seal. No, I'm the seal. Oh. You, you can, can be, be the rabbits. snake or the rat. Okay, I'll be a snake. If you're the seal, it means I'm going to eat you first, just so we're clearer do sharks eat seals what well of course they do this is a whole other podcast um but while we're on the subject uh so actually susan i want to start there there are so many revelations in the book and i have to say that uh even as a reporter who has been covering this administration you know who's been covering the russia probe uh who has read a lot of revelations of life inside the white house and the psychodrama that is the trump white house this was still an incredibly revelatory book and actually really alarming i think we would agree on a number of fronts that pertain to what we talk about here so susan i want to actually kick this to you first because you tweeted something that i thought was quite on point which was something the effect of if one-tenth of the things that are in the excerpts in this book are true, then we have a genuine national emergency, were your words. So talk about that and what it was that you read that made you think that. So I think it's, it's a really stunning book, and, I, and it hasn't even come out yet. So I, I do think that this really is going to be revelatory, and not because – of the insults, right? There's lots of sort of fun, funny things here about all the mean names that Trump has called different people. And that's kind of, that's the stuff that's beside the point. I think that there are the, the core revelation here that is the most alarming to me is that the executive branch is so afraid of the president, of, of the president being unfit, that they are taking steps to counter him that are themselves profoundly alarming. So I think two of the most significant sort of anecdotes is one in which President Trump reportedly calls defense, uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis and tells him that he wants to, quote, fucking kill Assad. 
Uh, and Mattis basically hangs up the phone and ignores him and tells his staff, like, we're going to ignore him, sort of a la Nixon. We'll see, you know, we'll see how he feels when he sobers up. You know, that is one. Uh, I think it's it's significant that that was Trump's impulse. Right. And that um, that he's making those kinds of decisions and presumably issuing those kinds of orders without thinking through the full consequences. But also that we have a secretary of defense that is not listening to the president, that itself is alarming. I and think telling his staff, we are going to ignore the president. Right. I, I think the other thing that's this like shocking anecdote is of staff members stealing pieces of paper off the resolute desk to avoid Trump signing them and creating all kinds of like catastrophic economic effects, national security right. effects. Pulling out of NAFTA, for instance, was one thing that uh, the economic advisor, Gary Cohen, it's just pulled off the desk. Right. It's it's crazy to me. One, that you have a president who just like if things aren't on his desk, I think Dan Dresner tweeted like about object permanence in his toddler theme. Like right, the president just was like, well, it's not in front of me. I guess it's over. That itself that they're doing this. And I think for me, like the thing that sort of the, the big looming question at the end of all of this is if this situation is as alarming as it seems and if people are as afraid as they genuinely appear to be. Why are they talking to Bob Woodward? Why are they not talking to the American public? Like, why? Who is still telling themselves that this game by which the good people are managing the president inside and, you know, preventing him from his worst impulses? You know, if if Mattis, if Kelly, if other people came forward and said, look, this is what's happening or this book having been written, coming forward and saying it's all true. You know, I think that is we've now reached the point in which if this is really what's happening, there's a patriotic duty to inform the public about it. A couple things. So first of all, Susan mentions Dan Dresner, and I actually think it is worth a real shout out to Dan, who is a professor at Tufts at, at the Fletcher School and uh, has been for more than a year now uh, in a semi-jocular fashion, every time there is a story in the newspaper in which some member of the president's staff behaves or talks about him in a fashion that is infantilizing or every time a Republican member of Congress or an ally does, he tweets a screenshot of it with the single line, I'll believe the president is, you know, growing into his role when his staff stops talking about him like a toddler. And he threads these three. There are now more than 400 toddler-in-chief thread elements. And they are a stunning read. And they presage this book pretty dramatically. And I think you know, uh, Dresner was on to this issue very early. And when I read the excerpts of this book in the post yesterday, the first thing, my first thought, other than a certain pan national emergency panic, was what a vindication of the project of the toddler-in-chief thread it is. And the fact that Dan was doing it in this somewhat comic way, I think, doesn't lessen the significance of, of the insight that he had. Second point is... Instead of coming forward and talking about this in public or saying it's all true, the individuals in question are all denying it. Now, uh, Woodward uh, has been known to get things wrong sometimes, but he's not getting the big theme here wrong. If certain of the individual anecdotes are misunderstandings or garbles, the larger theme is clearly not uh, which is not to say there's some, I'm not accusing him of getting anything wrong. I'm just saying 
if one or a couple of these incidents aren't exactly the way he's described it. I just have no doubt that there is a larger truth that he's gotten exactly right here. It is one that we all knew to be true before we read the thing, you know, and but having it this vividly portrayed is a really, really striking thing. And I do think that people like Jim Mattis and Reince Priebus and Gary Cohn all need to think about at this point whether and how much they want to continue to conceal the truth on this guy's behalf. I think that that's those are all good points. What struck me most profoundly reading through the reports of this book, and I don't have access to the full manuscript yet, I can only imagine that what we're seeing are perhaps the most dramatic or salacious parts, but there's going to be a lot of context that will give that picture depth and maybe add to my sense of horror and alarm. But I think my sense of horror and alarm is not only about the attitudes and behavior of the president of the United States, who in these anecdotes is repeatedly revealed to be unfit to carry out the duties of his office because of his ignorance, because of his carelessness, because of his readiness to flout the law and procedure. But that's not my only source of alarm. My other source of alarm is that in attempting to mitigate, and they are barely mitigating some of these president's worst, you know, impulses, these advisors, these staffers, these members of the cabinet are engaged in behavior that violates the unitary executive that may be outside their authority that violates all kinds of norms about the way our government is supposed to function in order to preserve the rule of law and the authority of a democratic system. And so, you know, we talk all the time about the breakdown in political norms undergirding our democracy that is represented by the president. But in supposedly protecting us from the president, they are eroding those norms further. That really bothers me. The second thing that really bothers me is that, you know, and we talked a lot at the outset of the administration about the calculations that senior policy people face in deciding whether or not to go in and serve. And, you know, that in the case of someone like Mattis, the ability to stop bad things from happening may be sufficient justification. But if the mechanisms they have to use to stop bad things from happening are mechanisms like this, subterfuge, lying, instructing executive branch staff to ignore the expressed will of the president of the United States. Is that really worth it? And I have to ask, isn't there another remedy available? Secretary Mattis is a member of the cabinet. There is a constitutional mechanism. If you believe that the president of the United States is unfit to carry out the duties of his office, Shane pegged this right at the beginning. Shout out to you on that, Shane. Why isn't the 25th Amendment being invoked here? What is wrong with these cabinet officials that they are willing to lie to the president, lie to their staffs, lie now about what they told Bob Woodward and not do their duty, okay. which is invoke the Can amendment? Can I push you on this tomorrow? Please. Uh, I, I'm genuinely sort of scratching my head about it. You're Jim Mattis. And you have this crazy conversation with the president in which he essentially orders the assassination of Bashar Assad. Which would be illegal, by the way. Let's be clear. And 
you say About, like, yeah, and, international law. Well, and it's ex- also illegal under EO twelve triple three. But that's an executive that's order. An executive so order. can the president violate an executive order is, or override is it? Right. Okay. So right. so let's um, let's say uh, leave aside legalities. Would you have preferred that in that moment he say yes, sir, Mr. President, we'll get right on that and order the strike against Bashar Assad. What is the what is the course in that moment, assuming the facts as Woodward reports them are accurate, that Jim Mattis should have engaged in? Jim Mattis could have gotten on the phone to the White House counsel and the attorney general and the and the head of the intelligence community and the secretary of state and said, the president has given me an instruction with a whole lot of implications for all of us. So we need to have a national security process that involves reconsideration of the executive order. And, you know, possibly he will need to sign a new order revoking the, the prohibition on assassination, etc. In other words, there is a policy process that he could wield to forestall that decision, force it into the open, force the president to engage with the consequences of his impulsive decision. And, you know, and then the other members of the cabinet have an opportunity to work with the secretary of defense in the way that they're designed to do to shape policy and if necessary, to confront the president. But for him to just decide on his own, no, I'm going to ignore that one and see if I can get away with it, to me is an abdication of responsibility to the country. I wonder, too, if there's something – and I, 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 I to pick up on what you said, Tammy, there's there's something really unsettling about this idea of – I think Woodward even described it in the book as an administrative coup d'etat, mm-hmm. like this idea that these unelected, appointed totally. officials are making the decisions – you know, whether you like Trump or not, I mean, he was a democratically elected, legitimately elected president. But one thing I wonder is if I'm just kind of gaming this out a little bit, and I'm thinking, okay, pretend I'm Jim Mattis. He would be in this room right now hearing, saying, yes, I hear all of you. I absolutely hear what you're saying. What I wonder is if he has made the decision already based on experience that the option that you're spelling out is not a viable one, that for whatever reason – he can't initiate a process. The process is completely broken down. No one will come along with him. Maybe he doesn't have the clout interagency or he's afraid people will agree with the president. And then I found myself also wondering, well, if it's this bad, why don't you as Jim Mattis, probably the most credible figure in the administration, come out publicly and say to the American people, this is what's happening. And I wonder if he's also determined that that strategy doesn't seem viable because he's afraid no one would do anything or they wouldn't believe him or he'd be pilloried. So like to your point, I'm wondering – Imagining that he's thought about these options, I was left wondering, what if this really is, as Jim Mattis saw it, the least bad of all the terrible outcomes and the one that he picked? And it's not so much like ego, I can hold the line as much as it's like, look, this is honestly, I think, the best thing, all things considered. I think it, I think that is probably accurate to Mattis's thinking. I think a little bit it's being sort of proven by the response to the Woodward book, which is a bunch of people saying – well, none of this was surprising. We knew that this was all, you know, that this was all happening and no one should be acting shocked by this. Therefore, minimizing these like incredibly disturbing accounts. And I don't see anybody talking about actual concrete steps that should be taken at this point. I see a lot of people kind of shrugging and thinking, yeah, it's, it's crazy town. So I want to suggest a different path for Mattis. I, again, I'm, I'm genuinely scratching my head about this and don't know what, what the right answer is. But how about this? You get, you get off the phone with that and you immediately write a letter of resignation 
describing the conversation and you say, Mr. President, you gave me an illegal order that I cannot follow and I resign rather than following it and I am referring the contents of that conversation to the armed services, Senate intelligence, House Judiciary for possible consideration as a matter of impeachment. And you write a cover letter describing all of it to the relevant oversight committees, and then you walk out the door and you give a press conference. So I think that that is the nuclear option. And I suspect that what was factoring into Mattis's thinking in this particular instance is not that he'd gamed out what the alternatives were and decided this was the best one, but that he walked into office or very shortly after walking into office, developed a clear hierarchy of what's the issue on which he would follow that path, Ben, that nuclear option, threaten to resign, threaten to blow the lid off everything. And what are the other things that are less bad than that, that he's not going to lie down in front of the train for? And, you know, a, a ranting call from the president, you know, why don't we just assassinate the whole lot of them in Syria? He probably ranks below war on the Korean Peninsula as a nightmare he's there to prevent. And so he can't follow the path that you're prescribing for every one of these instances. There are just too damn many, which is precisely the problem. And so I, can, I might even respect the hierarchy that he's developed. But the fact that he is operating in the context of having to have such a hierarchy should tell him that there is a bigger problem here that he cannot solve through ad hoc decisions. And he should be working with the other members of the cabinet, with senior leaders in Congress, et cetera, to deal with the bigger problem. But, I, you know, I think what you've just described is something we actually talked about way right after the inauguration, which is this thing about the story you tell yourself about serving in Trump's administration. There is always a worse hypothetical. There is always some other terrible thing that you being in office is going to prevent. And that kind of thinking allows you to walk down a road of supporting absolutely egregious things, things you never thought you would be a part of because of some other bigger, worse thing eventually. All right. So moving on, uh, the administration has announced that it is pulling funding for a UN agency that handles uh, Palestinian relief issues. So like works and jobs. Uh, these kinds of issues. Uh, among the administration's many complaints about this agency, which I think it wasn't a huge surprise, maybe Tammy will enlighten us on what they were pulling out. And they, by the way, it contributed about a third of the $1.1 billion of its 2017 budget, was that the way that the UN was calculating the number of Palestinians officially recognized as refugees was too high. The administration wanted them to change the number from more than 5 million who were counted to a few hundred thousand alive when the agency was started about 70 years ago. Uh, that's from our report in the Post. Um, so, I mean, walk us through a little bit of what this agency is, but like, what's what's at issue here? Because I, 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 I mean, many people had never heard of this agency or not really familiar with what the UN does with as far as Palestinian relief issues how the U.S. plays into that. What, what's going on and what are the, the politics at stake here? Okay, so it's an unusual U.N. agency. This is the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, and it's unusual in that it was established to deal with only one group of people, unlike, you know, human rights bodies or refugee bodies that deal with refugees all over the world. UNRWA, as it's called, was established only to deal with Palestinians displaced 
in the Arab-Israeli wars of 1948 and then later 1967. And so it includes in its register of Palestinian refugees not only the original 750,000 or so who were displaced from their homes in 1948 in the area that became Israel, but also their descendants, children, grandchildren, and now great-grandchildren, all of which adds up to about 5.3 million people, as you said, Shane. So the United States has had a lot of issues over the years with this agency, and and, uh, not only the United States. There have been concerns that this agency, because it works only with this single population, has a certain amount of clientitis, and that it hasn't always been politically neutral in the way that it's provided services. It provides essential services to hundreds of thousands of Palestinian kids who are educated in schools, healthcare, employment programs, immunizations, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, and it works, by the way, not only in the West Bank and Gaza, but also in uh, Palestinian refugee camps in Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria. So it's actually a lot of Palestinians who are not living either under Israeli control or under the Palestinian Authority, but who are still affected by this agency. So the the Trump administration had already announced that they were going to cut funding to this agency. And previous American administrations, including the Obama administration, had pushed for various types of reform to this agency. But last week, the Trump administration announced that they were going to cut the UN contribution completely. And as you noted, um, the US is, has been traditionally the largest donor. So it leaves a huge hole. It may mean that school for a lot of these Palestinian kids uh, ends suddenly at the end of September or in October or whenever they run out of money. And it's part of a broader approach by the Trump administration, not just toward the issue of Palestinian refugees, but toward the Israeli-Palestinian conflict overall. There are four big outstanding issues that Israelis and Palestinians are supposed to settle in a final agreement. Uh, The status of Jerusalem, the status of settlements, the status of borders, and the status of Palestinian refugees. And on two of these four issues now, the Trump administration has sort of broken the mold of American policy and unilaterally announced a policy view that goes way toward the Israeli side of attitudes on this question and in a way kind of prejudges the American position in final status negotiations. The first was Jerusalem, uh, where Trump said after moving the U.S. embassy there last December, we're taking Jerusalem off the table, uh, a statement that's been confirmed a number of times since. And in cutting funding to UNRWA, the Trump administration has said they don't think all these people should be considered refugees. They think it's ridiculous that Palestinians hold out the possibility of return or compensation for all of these 5.3 million people. And so they're essentially taking a much more Israeli view of this question as well, leading Palestinians to ask, well, What's the point of negotiating final status if the U.S., the supposed mediator, is taking Israel's side? So I'm wondering sort of if we take this as a continuation of kind of the Kushner-Greenblatt vision of the peace process, is there any evidence that this strategy is working at all, right? We've now had two major decisions that they represented we're going to free up, right? Take the issue off and then we can actually have this engagement. And the question was, well, 
why wouldn't the Palestinians just withdraw from the process? And why wouldn't the Israelis just keep pushing, right? That there was nothing to sort of bargain with. Has anything about this now been borne out in practice that you can look at and say, well, no, it actually does seem like the Israelis are more willing to play ball or, oh, the Palestinians are saying they're going to withdraw from the process, but really they're realizing that they have to. I mean, is there any evidence that this is actually working? I think probably it's it would be unfair to say that there's been enough time passed that there's clear evidence in one direction or another. The contention of the Trump administration and those like Jason Greenblatt and Jared Kushner who have been designing the Trump administration policy here is that, well, what we had wasn't working. The Oslo-based peace process had kind of run its course. There were no active negotiations. Israelis and Palestinians were not making progress on any of these final status issues. And so a little disruption might not be a bad thing. Let's try something new. And that's what they've been saying in response to criticism of this decision. I think, you know, there are, however, a couple of things to point out. One is that this is a volatile, unstable conflict. It's not anywhere near resolution, but it's not exactly just sitting still. And disruption can be dangerous in that environment. The practical consequence of cutting this funding means that you may have hundreds of thousands of Palestinian students idle and out of school. Employment programs ended, so young Palestinian men are idle and on the streets. Like, there's a lot of potential uh, destabilizing consequences, as we often say in political science, that could flow as a practical matter from this decision, not to mention the human suffering that comes along with it. And and that's all before you get to the incentives for Israelis or Palestinians to to actually negotiate seriously. So the Trump administration would ha- would argue that, and many Israelis on the right would argue that it's important for the U.S. to make its views on these issues clear. The Palestinians shouldn't have any illusions, and that's going to lead to a better, more realistic, more productive negotiation down the road. I just am skeptical that it's actually going to work out that way. So I agree with that pretty completely. And no part of me thinks this is a good idea. But. <laughs> well. You're going to pretend it. What if it were? No, no, no. I, I don't think it's a good idea. I do think UNRWA is a particularly horrible organization. And I do think that there is something gross and pernicious about having 70 years of a world in which every refugee problem in the world is handled by one organization, except Palestinians who have their own UN organization that adopts their particular political vision of what a refugee is, which is a hereditary status that the obligations to settle are entirely given to one country, which is not the position we take about any other refugee problem in the world. And I do think that that is part of a worldwide, very political decision to retain the Palestinian refugee problem for as long as possible for leverage purposes in Israeli, Arab, and Israeli-Palestinian talks. And so... I do feel about this that it's a bad and and stupid decision that couldn't have happened to a nicer bunch of people insofar as you're talking about UNRWA. And the problem is 
that it also affects a lot of civilians, uh, Palestinian civilians who are actually dependent on, on UNRWA and the consequences of which can be very destabilizing and damaging. I think it's important in that conversation not to romanticize the organization in question, which tomorrow was not doing, but a lot of people do, and to not pretend that the role that this organization is playing and that the U.S. has been asked to and has supported as the largest contributor in the world is simply a matter of humanitarian good. It's a highly political and quite negative effect organization that has been allowed to persist over a long period of time in the, in the role that it's played because we have this thing we call the peace process and we're negotiating, right? And the problem is then that mass gets pulled away because let's be honest, there is no peace process right now. You have a Palestinian leadership that doesn't want to engage in it. And you have an Israeli leadership that doesn't want to engage in it. And so eventually you start having to ask yourself, why should we pay for this? And in the Obama administration, the answer is, oh, we really shouldn't, but you know, we want to get this started again. So let's not rock, you know, a lot of people are depending on it. We don't like it, but okay. And in the Trump administration, the answer is, oh, because we already have our E, fuck them. And, <laughs> um, and so, you know, that's, I, I don't think that's a good answer. I don't think it's the right answer, but I do think that it is not wholly surprising that they're taking this view. Ben's point is important that the the broader kind of play acting that the Trump administration's decision has exposed is that all of this assistance provided by the United States to UNRWA, but also to the Palestinian Authority and, you know, to other places as well, is premised on there being a negotiating process. And all this money is meant to sort of stabilize and kind of keep things rolling along while that negotiating process takes place. So what does it mean to keep giving this money when there's no negotiating process? That's all true. The other thing that's going on here, though, that's important and that's new is that in the past, the Israeli government was a supporter of American assistance to the Palestinian Authority and even to UNRWA, although the Israeli government has sharp and some well-justified criticisms of UNRWA. This money was seen by the Israeli security establishment as an essential stabilizing factor on the ground. And what's changed here is that Prime Minister Netanyahu, apparently without fully consulting either the Israeli security institutions or his cabinet or his inner security cabinet changed his position, called the Trump administration a few weeks ago and told them, you know what, go ahead and cut, the, cut all this money and kind of is leaving the Israel Defense Forces and the, and the uh, intelligence services holding the bag for maintaining stability and maintaining cooperation with Palestinians on the ground in the face of this massive disruption. Well, speaking of a peace process that has broken down. <laughs> that was good. Jeff Sessions is still the attorney general. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and he's not talking to Donald Trump. But Donald Trump is talking to him or tweeting at him. That's how he talks to everybody he really cares about. That's how he knows he lo you lo that he loves you. Yeah. That's true. Um, so Trump tweeted at Sessions. I've lost track of how many times, but this one was um, a particularly noteworthy tweet. 
criticizing him for the Justice Department's indictment of two members of Congress, who both of whom happened to be uh, early supporters of the Trump campaign and some of the few Trump's Republican congressional supporters of the campaign, saying uh, essentially, uh, why did you go and indict these two Republicans? You're going to hurt us in the midterms. By the way, they're indicted on charges of insider training and campaign fraud. For activity that post-dates he dated it to the Obama administration, the activity post-dates the Obama administration. Right. right. And ended the tweet with, good job, Jeff. Which he didn't really mean that was a good job. That was that was sarcastic. That was sarcasm. You know, I can never read sarcasm yeah, on Twitter. Um, <laughs> this, the, you know, we, we how many times have we said this? But I think it's worth lingering on, and we're going to talk a bit about the FISA debate within this as well, if I can even call it a debate. But this was, I mean, again, a, a pretty you know, noteworthy tweet, I think, Susan, because of the the blatant linking of both political activities and the rule of law. The president saying to the attorney general, why on earth would you hurt our chances politically and prosecute my friends for crimes? That's, I mean, it seems like it's the other side of the coin of what he's done before, which is to charge the attorney general with going after his political enemies. So the message from the president appears to be to Sessions, prosecute my enemies, lay off my friends. Yeah, so I think this is a really significant escalation. I, you know, I understand he's insulted Sessions in the past, but you know, the president is telling the attorney general essentially that he should not pursue charges when prosecutors are prepared to, uh, you know, prove their evidence beyond a reasonable doubt for political purposes. And you know, this is the kind of thing that if you caught the president on tape telling this to the attorney general. We would be in impeachment hearings right now. Mm-hmm. Like, and this is this is as bad as anything Nixon said on tape. And so, for him to be saying it right out in the open, it's a little bit. I think people don't even quite know to, how to react or how to process it. There's nothing new, right? The way that with the way that Trump has talked about Eric Holder as sort of being loyal to Obama, it's clear that he thinks this is how it how everybody is, right? He he's praising Holder when he this says is this how guy it's is so loyal to work. Exactly. Yeah. Like, where's my loyal attorney general? It is such a profound corruption of the rule of law, and yet almost crickets in response. I mean, really, we've been through these cycles so many times. This to me is is the most brazen, the most egregious, and it is the one that has gotten the least response. And, and actually, we're seeing things moving in the wrong direction. We're seeing people like Lindsey Graham talking about basically Trump firing Sessions after the midterms, and well, he's entitled to have an attorney general he has faith in. And right, we're we're seeing like the the line isn't holding; the line is crumbling, and so. Like I feel like we'll look back at the end of whatever this is and there will be this moment or these moments where you say like, come on, why wasn't this the inflection right. point? Right. And and this I really do think is is one of them that people are going to look back on and say like, why was this not a thing that, that occasioned more of a response? So what about that? Do you guys think that people are – just beaten down and kind of inured to his railing against Sessions uh, by this point? Or is this kind of a variation on what Woodward describes in his book, which is that people are just ignoring him, like just ignore him. He's tweeting, you know, let me let him let the baby sit in the corner. So I think there's a big connection between this subject and the Woodward subject, which is that 
you know, one of the reasons the Woodward subject isn't getting that much attention is other than sort of prurient attention is that we all kind of knew that people were stealing things off his desk to prevent them from signing and we just didn't know the details. Or he was ripping them up and eating them. Ben, I steal things off your desk all the time. Yeah, and that's why bad things have to happen on Lawfare recently because Susan, when I, you know, go to the bathroom or something. any trade agreement. Uh, she sneaks into my office and takes all the stuff I'm going to do off my desk. Um, if, you know, we all kind of knew some of that stuff was happening or we assumed it. And similarly, so when the president goes out and basically says stuff that we all kind of know he thinks, which is that the purpose of the Justice Department is to reward friends and punish enemies, reminding himself that he should read book one of Plato's Republic where Polymarchus says that that is his vision of justice and argues with Plato. That's the first discussion in the Republic is, is that justice punishing friends and uh, but rewarding friends and punishing enemies? That's the first thing Plato does is expl- – Socrates does is explains that that's not justice, right? <laughs> like, like the, the, What's the, wrong with these people? Yeah, um, <laughs> it's almost as if Trump has not read Plato. <laughs> it's almost as though he's not read Plato. And, and you know, like this is – but we all know it. And so it's a little bit like if, you know, the president walked outside and said – I'm not very bright. I'm a little bit crazy and I'm really, really impulsive and angry and I don't like black people um, and I really don't like foreigners. You wouldn't be that surprised. Um, You'd because, be like, yeah, we know. Can we can be like, yeah, all right. So I – but I think that in a sense, although there's an interaction as you just described it, Ben, there is a real distinction between the reaction of people who are in and around this administration and kind of in and around Washington who are exhausted and bombarded every day and saying like Shane, you know, oh, just ignore him, just ignore the baby in the corner. You know, that may be their response is if we ignore it, he won't try to act on it. Like don't don't stoke it. If we talk about how it's bad to talk this way about Sessions, it'll just make him want to fire Sessions more. That's the kind of elite reaction which, for all the reasons that we've been discussing, has real limits and might even be destructive. But in addition to that, I think you have the broader public reaction. You know, why is that not fiercer? Like, oh, my God, is that really what he – how could he possibly think that? That's – I mean, people are idiots. They know what corruption looks like. They see it in their everyday lives. They know how corrupt that statement is. But we're not hearing a lot of backlash there either because they have become accustomed in that sort of, you know, Daniel Patrick Moynihan defining deviancy down kind of way. And so these are two different kinds of becoming inured to the problem. But both of them have the effect, I think, of protecting Trump from the consequences of his own words. Do you guys think that this makes it – are we at a point now where looking at this attack on Sessions – and I should also couple this in with the attack that he launched at the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Completely bizarre Which is so bizarre because, I mean, you know – But but it's getting picked up even among, you know, sort of the reasonable Republicans, right? Britt Hume is, well, you know, there is serious questions here. Well, that's that's an interesting thing to explore just to kind of catch people up for a second. So the FISA court controversy, you know, chapter 17 that we're on now stemming from Carter Page and the warrant that was – the surveillance that was conducted on him. 
Judicial Watch, which is this conservative legal group, um, probably most famous recently for going after Hillary Clinton's emails and lawsuits, um, uh, was able to get through the Freedom of Information Act documents on the the process leading up to the warrant. And what it revealed was that there was not a hearing before the FISA court of the Carter Page surveillance warrant to which people understand how process the process goes went, no shit. There's usually not hearings for these things. There's an application rigorously compiled, scrutinized by, by lawyers that goes to a judge that either approves it or disapproves it. It's also an ex parte proceeding. You kind of don't want to tip off the person you're about to wiretap that you're wiretapping him. But this got picked up as if there was somehow a process circumvented uh, and that they just kind of rode a rough shot over this, and Carter Page never had a chance to argue it, and they didn't even have a hearing, and that's so crazy. How could you not have a hearing for something like this? But and it got, and to your point, it got picked up as, yeah, what about that? But there's no what about that. But, uh, the bizarre thing is this is not even an area in which, well, people, you know, they don't understand how the FISC functions different from, you know, sort of an ordinary court. Ordinary courts don't have hearings for warrants. Correct. That's not how this works. <laughs> I feel like I'm going crazy. Yeah, you may, no, that's just it. And so yeah. it's sort of you're yeah. looking at, especially Republican commentators. Haven't these people watched Law and Order? I mean, come on. criticism <laughs> of, you know, the criminal justice system. Why would you like, tell the person they're about to get a warrant on them? Talking about this is not like this is not how this process works, and yet the like the conspiracy theories or the scandals that appear to be taking root as as being reasonable among people who I think are supposed to represent like not fringe conspiracy theories, but you know mainstream commentators. It's they're becoming increasingly decoupled from sort of basic facts in a way that I, I do think there's an overall really alarming trend and and it's not just that Trump is is attacking the legitimacy of of you know independent law enforcement of the Department of Justice he's now attacking the legitimacy of other branches and other branches that are not accustomed to or in the habit of defending themselves or or opening their process in a way that explains to the public why this is legitimate and and I, I do think that this is this is a more alarming trend that we've a little bit lost sight of uh, you know how serious it's become so does this make it more or less likely when Jeff Sessions is eventually fired that Republicans in Congress will exact holy hell as Lindsey Graham once insisted that they would. Well, not if Lindsey Graham today is to be believed, right? So one of the problems, you know, the word normalization gets thrown around a lot generally and in the context of we can't let this be normalized, we can't normalize this. But this is actually a process of normalization, right? And a year ago when the president first got mad at Jeff Sessions, it was unthinkable to Republicans that he could get rid of him and Republicans, including uh, Chairman Grassley, spent the summer saying, no way, no how. We don't have time to confirm another person. If you get rid of Jeff Sessions, uh, we already have an E on this. You're fucked. You know, now the reaction of a few Republicans like Ben Sass is that and Jeff Flake is that. But the the a remarkable number of Republicans seem pretty complacent about the idea that the president might fire the attorney general or might bully him into resigning uh, in order to uh, replace him with somebody he has confidence in when he 
articulates publicly the basis of his confidence as you're my stooge and you'll go after my enemies and support my friends and and not bring indictments against my friends in contexts in which that could be damaging to me electorally. And, you know, that's a very striking change. And, you know, all all it says to me is that if in this political environment you repeat the same thing over and over and over again, uh, irrespective of how divorced it may be from the truth, a large number of people, including like otherwise sensible people like Brit Hume, will start to believe it and repeat it and assimilate it into their worldview. And, you know, that's a really upsetting thing to watch. It's almost as though we no longer have a common base of facts or a common understanding. It's it's as though expertise is dead or something. I mean, look, on on the larger question of how That was for you, Tom Nichols. <laughs> And the you. larger question of how to sort of keep Trump under control, you know, I think it's worth noting that as we're sitting here, the Washington Post has published a story saying the White House is discussing potential replacements for Jim Mattis. This has been a primary mechanism for controlling Trump is early personnel choices, essentially locking him into them and trying to prevent any sort of maneuvering and hoping that those people will will hold the line. And, you know, I, I think we are going to see, especially after the midterms, that start that start to crumble. And and then who knows who's going to be in those jobs? And, and frankly, anyone who the president would select, especially for the role of attorney general, is per se unacceptable. Someone who is acceptable to the president because he has been open about the the single quality he cares about that is the way that we all know that they are not that, that they cannot serve as attorney general and so if he does fire jeff sessions we really do hit a, an almost impossible situation moving forward yeah, and I don't think we can expect secretary of defense lindsey graham to be much or of a Tom constraint Cotton. on the president oh god let's move on to object lessons <laughs> Please. <laughs> Please. This was this is called the we're fucked edition. Oh my right? god. And it's so hot in here. <laughs> you feel like you're already in hell? I'm <laughs> dancing in the flickering flames. <laughs> oh god. Uh who wants to start with object lessons? I'll start with a cheery object lesson. Okay, I have just a fun to, one too. Just to cheer you up. So it's after Labor Day. It's September, and that means it's time for school to start. Oh. And I, you know, I have a PhD. I once thought I might be a professor, but it has actually been 10 years since I set foot in a classroom until last night. Wow. When I held the first meeting of the class I'm teaching at Georgetown. It's an undergrad school foreign service class on America and U.S. alliances in the Middle East. I have 15 awesome students. It was so much fun. And I'm really excited for the semester to come. And so my object this week is my syllabus. Nice. You know, we could Plural have... syllabuses, nice. not syllabi. syllabi. We could have 15 new listeners, too, if you put us on your syllabus. <laughs> extra credit. <laughs> Didn't even think about you that. You got to stay for the band name to get the extra <laughs> credit. star rating. <laughs> <laughs> Send in a screenshot. That's awesome. Is this for the, for the, for the fall semester? Yep. Well, Professor Wittes. That's great. Uh, I'll do mine next. Um, so everyone knows I like to bring in what I'm watching. So I just started watching uh, Tom. Tell me it's not Jack Ryan. It's Jack Ryan. Oh, no. <laughs> 
And usually I come with recommendations, and I'm not going to slam this show, but I am deeply skeptical that this show is not going to suck. Um, you know, that's a little harsh. I understand. Like, I love. What do you ge- mean? You, you're skeptical. It's not gonna suck. You You've can't already tell watched already it. So that it sucks. No, like one episode. I mean, I haven't. I mean, they had the whole series to go. I got here. to three. I gave up. It sucks. Oh, you watched? Oh, you went to three? Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. So I actually, I so so I love the Jack Ryan series. You know, everyone says like, "What's your actual favorite movie?" There's the favorite movie you tell everyone. And there's the actual favorite movie. My actual favorite movie is The Hunt for Red October. Of course, it's great. I love John Krasinski just because, and also Quiet Place. Amazing. Have you seen this? Mm-mm. Oh my god, that should be actually that's an object, object lesson. lesson. That's a security thing too. That movie should get a Best Picture nomination. Shouldn't win, but you can have it anyway. <laughs> the Jack Ryan thing. It's like it's like it's packing every. Like stupid trope about the Middle East and terrorism and intelligence into a show. And I made this comment and it might be kind of provocative, but I said it's like Homeland for conservatives. Like I fundamentally believe Homeland is geared at liberals. Mm-hmm. And I got into an argument with somebody at this where it works like, no, 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 it's clearly a show for conservatives. Like, no, Homeland is for liberals. Mm-hmm. And like we can talk a whole lot about that. But this show feels to me it's like Homeland's answer. Like it's a dude – you know, it's all black and white, or in this case, brown and white. Uh, you know, it's um, I mean, there's just all these kind of like tropes that are coming up in it. Like, and, it and, loves and guns, but it's loves... all about the guns. Yeah, man. he's like that wearing like these incredibly guns. form-fitting clothes, yeah. which don't make any sense. But you know, especially because he bikes to work. I doesn't make, the whole but thing. However is just... bad the show is, the take. By which people who live in Washington D.C. explain that his commute doesn't make any sense because they live in Washington D.C. and this stuff is it's worse than the show. I've never even <laughs> seen the show, but your stupid take showing us that you live in the city, yeah. we all do, yeah. is dumb. Stop! I don't yeah. want to hear about it anymore. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I think and it's probably going to be very successful. I'm going to. I think it's going to be successful. I think it's going to be successful. With the writing guys. is so bad. The writing's terrible. No offense to whoever wrote it. I'm sure you tried really hard. <laughs> you are awful. But there's at your so job. much. No of, offense. Oh, there really no is. Offense. There's a lot of like. He means it in the nice way. <laughs> Hello, Tom, my office mate, where we work on terrorism <laughs> financing issues. Hello, Jack. What were you doing when you biked into work today? I mean, there's a lot of this, just like, oh God. Subtlety is dead. Inference doesn't exist. Anyway, Jack Ryan, maybe watch it. <laughs> All um, right. Um, I am. Uh, my object lesson this week, because we have this E rating already, is a pile of bullshit. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I was getting worried that it might be something even more. No, no. A while back, uh, we started doing these, uh, these podcasts, um, the Lawfare podcasts that were, you know, when somebody would testify. And whenever somebody goes up to the hill, there's a lot of bullshit, but there's often like some really valuable exchanges. And so we started doing these, you know, like Shane versus the committee with no bull, where we would edit out all the bullshit and it would just be the cool questions that like, you know, Senator so-and-so asked Shane and the cool exchanges. And you can usually get down like a five hour hearing to, you know, 45 minutes or an hour and a half. So today we are trying to produce a Kavanaugh versus the committee with no bull in which we identify only the exchanges that are relevant to lawfare listeners. Here's the thing. There's so much bullshit. Like the amount that we are removing relative to the amount that's staying in is a real commentary on Congress. And, 
Uh, now, it's a little bit unfair because there's a lot of substantive stuff in there that we're taking out just because it doesn't have to do with you know stuff that's relevant to lawfare. But the overwhelming majority of these you know, multiple days of hearing is just bullshit. And so my object lesson is all the stuff, all the bullshit that we're taking out <laughs> so that you guys can have on the Lawfare podcast later this week, Kavanaugh versus the committee with no bull. This heroic work, Ben. Well, on that cheery note. La. It's the first day, first show, first day of class, first show on the new podcast. First, first day of the rest of your lives. It's all about new beginnings, but it's the end of the podcast. <laughs> Rational Security, of course, is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at the Lawfare blog. No, just lawfareblog.com. Lawfareblog. Is it lawfareblog.com slash something? Yeah, slash, I believe, podcast, podcast. slash rational dash security. <laughs> you should probably know that. Is there like, is there a If your, you just, just Google If you it, just like Google rational person. security and it like, it's right next have... to lawfareblog.com slash mountains of bullshit. <laughs> where you put all the outtakes. <laughs> we'll do the outtakes. <laughs> Whenever... Dump them in the rational security feed. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please leave us a review and a five star rating. If you're so inclined, it would really help us out. Production assistance this week from Michaela Fogel. Audio and studio engineering by Matthew Kahn. The multi-talented Matthew Multi-talented. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Donald Trump and the Zoo Without Walls. Ooh. Excellent. Like that actually sounds like a good band. Yeah. <laughs> we would it's all like go see zoo, zoo Without Walls. Zoo Without Walls. Yeah. yeah. It was, that was it, yeah? Maybe it's yeah, death metal. Walls. Yeah. I think he's the seal. Yeah. And then oh, uh, like Bob Mueller's the shark. <laughs> on Mueller is the fox. Mueller is the fox. Uh-huh. And Sophia Yan is on keys. On behalf of my good friends Tamara Kaufman, Wittis, Susan Hennessy, and Ben Wittis, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Goodbye from the New Jungle Studio. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.